Hi, my name is Pastor Daniel. I'm so excited you're taking an opportunity to watch this sermon. We believe that any time we open the Word of God, that we have an opportunity to be changed because the Bible is the actual live Word of our Heavenly Father. And we hope that this impacts you in a positive way. A quick word of caution, and that is that this sermon that you're about to watch is by no means uh, the church. It's not a substitute for a church. It's not a substitute for a pastor in your life. The church is not a building. The church is the body of Christ, a group of believers doing life together, worshiping and pursuing Jesus together. In no way should this be any sort of primary discipleship in your life, and in no way should this replace the pastor that somewhere God has called to shepherd you. We hope sincerely that you're part of a local church somewhere. And if you're not, I wanna encourage you to go find a local church to be part of, because for all of the ups and downs and messiness of the local church, the Bible calls it the bride of Christ. It is the hope of the world. And you need to be part of one because it'll help. If you don't know where or how to find a local church, we'd love to help. You can simply go to our website and email us at hello at resurrect.church and we'll do our best to plug you in. We appreciate your time. We hope that this supplementary discipleship impacts you in a positive way. We believe the Bible has a profound impact on us when we allow God to speak to us. Thanks. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Good morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here at Resurrection Church. Happy Easter for those of you joining us in person and those of you joining us online. Uh, I, let me just start with a confession. I'm kind of a hot mess today. Um, my neighbors and my family decided to throw a little barbecue yesterday at the end of our cul-de-sac so we could meet all the rest of the neighbors on our block. And it was a lot of fun. There were a lot of people that came. But there's this thing that some of you know and that some of you probably have never experienced, and that is that when you are redheaded and freckled, you and the sun don't get along. And so it wasn't until yesterday evening that my kids were snickering and I'm trying to figure out why and I walked in front of a mirror and was like, oh no, that's bad. But I was really excited to get to preach today. I'd never gotten to preach on an Easter before. They don't let associate pastors out of the box very often. And I woke up really early and, uh, you know, in pain from my sunburn. And I was studying and I was prepping. I was really excited. And then I, I did this thing I know that I'm not supposed to do. And that is that I turned on I Am Who You Say I Am, which is that worship song that gets me to messy cry. And I listened to it five times and drank two Red Bulls. Okay. So just hanging in there. I'm a hot mess. Maybe some of you can relate. Maybe you're here and you're in your Easter best, but in reality, you were arguing on the way over and just things aren't always as great as you like to let on and that's all right, you're in the right place. Here's what I want to talk about today. I, I, I want to, I think that no matter how experienced you are, whether this is your first Easter in a church or your 80th Easter in a church, that the gospel is this thing that we just all have this tendency to underestimate. And I want to I talk about that, but before I do, I realized that because we have a lot of visitors uh, and we're in America, that I, I needed to 
define this term gospel because we use the word gospel to mean a lot of different things. It's a type of music. Uh, we have different gospels. You can tell some of the gospel truth. It means different things to different people. So I want to be very clear on what the gospel is. We just heard an account from the Gospel of John, which is about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the cornerstone, the foundation of this idea of the gospel. Uh, I read a really good quote that I wanted to read to you. It says this, the central truth of the gospel is that God has provided a way of salvation for men through the gift of his son to the world. He suffered as a sacrifice for sin, overcame death, and now offers a share in his triumph to all who will accept it. The gospel is good news because it is a gift of God, not something that must be earned by penance or self-improvement. You and I were designed for relationship with God. It is in our very nature. In fact, if you turn back to Genesis at the beginning, we walked with God in the garden until this whole story about a forbidden fruit. We'll get to that later. And we were separated from God. Isaiah 59, 2 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Jesus came to fix that problem. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8 is probably the most succinct synopsis of the gospel. The apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he's trying to remind them. He says this, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you now stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, the apostles, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. This is the gospel, that Jesus came to make a way where there was no way for you and I. Now, regardless of how you got here today, I, I, I want to just make a deal with you, right? So maybe some of you uh, come here all the time, maybe some of you, you have a drug problem, meaning you got drug here by grandma. Pastor jokes, sorry. <laughs> Listen, I know that there are a lot of things to do on Easter Sunday, and I know that for some of you, in your head right now, you're calculating how long is this funny guy gonna talk because I have things to do on Easter, and, and there's a litany of things in your head, a list of things that need to get handled, and you're the person that has to handle them, and there's a temptation while we talk about the resurrection to begin to think about the things that you have to do after this, and I just want to submit to you that if you will give me your attention for about 30 minutes... The Bible's going to say some things about the gospel that will change everything, everything. And, and, and I've been a Christian for a while, and I just got to tell you, I, I'm still not over Jesus. I haven't graduated from the gospel. You don't move on from what Jesus did here. I don't ever want to be over it. <laughs> I believe that if you'll give me your attention for about 30 minutes, 
that what the Holy Spirit will do as the gospel seeps into your soul will have a transformative impact on your life and a generational impact on the people that will come after you. Three things about the gospel that I think we overlook. Number one, the problem was bigger than we understand. The problem that Jesus came to solve was bigger than we understand. Number two, the solution was more powerful than we think. And number three, the promise is bigger, greater, sweeter than we can imagine. The promise is bigger than we can imagine. All right. Now, here's my first premise. The problem was bigger than we understand. About three months ago or so, I was just... Uh, I was just kind of thinking about how everything that I was considering, everything I was kind of looking at, everything I was uh, seeing in my life was actually in some sort of state of decay. It was, it was, it was basically dying, and I probably started because I'm getting old and my knees hurt or something, but I, I looked around and I thought, you know, how many people have ever bought the new phone when the new phone came out? And when I say the new phone, I mean the one you had to stand in line for. You know what I'm talking about? It was like the new, new and a week later, there's a new, 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 and your phone's already old? But, but everything, I just consider for a moment that everything in our life is actually eroding. It's dying, it's decaying. You get a brand new car, and you know what I mean? You open the door and it has the new car smell. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Someone's smelled the new car smell before? It smells so good, they actually put it in a bottle called new car smell. You can spray it in your old car to try to make, I tried it in our 11-year-old van, it did not work. Don't have four kids. But, but that new car doesn't stay new very long. It starts to get old, it starts to wear out. It doesn't matter what you get. This building at one point was new. There are people in this church that nailed the nails into these, these beams when this was brand new, and yet it's, it's getting old, it's eroding. In fact, everywhere you look, everything you look at, everything you know is in some sort of state of decay. It's dying, it's passing away. How's that for a hopeful Easter sermon? You came to be encouraged. Okay. <clears throat> Consider this. Consider this. The earth itself is actually dying. In an article last year in Life Science Magazine in 2021, uh, they came to the conclusion that the planet is actually dying faster than we originally thought. A triple threat of climate change, biodiversity loss, and overpopulation is bearing down on Earth. And this is the quote, humanity is barreling toward a ghastly future of mass extinctions, health crises, and constant climate-induced disruptions to society. Happy Easter! Forbes magazine published an article last year that says our very universe, in fact, this is the title, the universe is very slowly dying as scientists helplessly look on. <laughs> the universe as it is today is less active, is forming fewer stars and is creating fewer chances for new life than ever before. To put it bluntly, the universe's best days are not only behind it, but things are getting progressively worse and worse as time goes on. Not just my old knees that are decaying. Everything around you is one step closer to death. Look around you. Look at the people sitting to your left and to your right. By the time we get done with this sermon, they are going to be 30 minutes closer to death. <laughs> May feel like longer. <laughs> this whole idea of the circle of life. Everyone's heard of the circle of life? 
Yes, we've all watched Lion King. Okay. This whole idea of the circle of life, the things that are born, they age, they die, they decay, and there's new life. That's not actually normal. You, you know that, right? That's, if you turn back to Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve didn't get old and die. That, that, we weren't created to age out and die. The, the world and creation wasn't created to decay and, and be destroyed. This isn't normal. This isn't right. And there's something inside of every single one of us that knows something's not right here. This wasn't what it was intended to be. We call it natural, but it's not we came up with those quotes. The only two certain things in life are death and taxes. It's tax day tomorrow, by the way. Happy Easter. <laughs> I, I read this quote and I loved it. It said, whether it's obvious, depressing, or morbid, the inevitability of death somehow never fails to be shocking. The sobering truth is that like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. Second Samuel. What we call natural is not how we were created, but instead is a result of the curse in the garden in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sin and disobey God and they break relationship with God, the ensuing curse that they earned is given. In Genesis 3, 17 through 19, it says, and, he, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. The earth is dying because of us. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Work wasn't always intended to be hard and a struggle and a toil. It was actually intended to be good. This is a result of the curse. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death, decay, destruction, disease is a byproduct of the curse in the garden. Not normal, not okay, not what we were created for. And what I'm trying to get across to you is that everything about this world passing away that we kind of label as normal or natural is not normal and it's not natural. No part of decaying and getting old and death and disease and cancers and loss and pain and erosion and toil and struggle, not one of these things is how God created it in the beginning. Now, we call it natural because it's it's all we've ever known. It's what we were born into. We were born into a life of sin. We were born into this world that is decaying. King David would say it this way in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not because she did anything wrong, but because we, each one of us, was born into sin. According to Romans 5, 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, our forefather, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. This isn't normal. We were born into it. We think of it as normal, but we know something's not right. 
Just because it's all we've ever known doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it God's original creation. I was reminded of that quote from Bain in Dark Knight where he says, you don't know the darkness. I was born in it, molded by it. I didn't see the light until I was already a man. It's how we look at death and destruction. We know no difference, but deep down, when we consider it, we know something's not right. And this problem is bigger than we imagine. See, we've gotten numb and used to the idea that death is coming. And every once in a while, a loved one dies or someone close to us dies or is taken away from us too soon. And all of a sudden, we're shocked again out of sort of our numbness. But listen, it is a plague on humanity. What, what does a person fear most in this life? Death. We fear death. What do we spend all of our efforts and our energy and our time and our passion in this life? Well, we've got to consume and attempt to satiate what we feel is not right, and we only have a certain amount of time to do it because, man, you're only young once because we're all getting old, because we're all passing away, because we're all headed toward death. Even work, even work is broken. How many people have gone to work knowing that a ton of things to do and you go to work and you got this big laundry list and so you stay longer, you stay nine hours, 10 hours, 11 hours at work and you're exhausted dragging yourself home thinking I'm further behind now than when I started. It's broken. No matter where you think the solution is to this problem, it doesn't lie in human hands. You see, Solomon would, Solomon was this interesting character in the Bible. He, he was the wisest man that ever lived. He was the wealthiest man that ever lived. Move over Elon Musk. He had 700 wives, which now makes me doubt that he was the wisest man that ever lived. <laughs> and 300 concubines. He achieved everything there was to achieve. He was globally known. He had wealth, riches, pleasure, notoriety for everything. And he writes in Ecclesiastes 1.14 this, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving wind. What is he saying? I've tasted everything that humans can possibly do, and all of it is hopeless, depressing, vanity. Happy Easter. <laughs> Do you see the problem? This world is broken. We're broken. Everything around us from structures to human endeavors to human relationships to things you could own where you could put your energy is passing away because of the curse. There's no part of this world or your life that have not been utterly shaped and changed by what happened in the Garden of Eden. And because of this, we're now all sinful, broken, hopeless people living in a sinful, broken, hopeless world, living a life we weren't designed to, missing the relationship we were designed for, running around like rats in a little cage looking for answers when most of us don't even know what the real problem is. This is how I felt in college I got to college thinking that I would, I would be able to crack open what really was bothering me and I could pursue the passions that I felt like would actually lead to real contentment in my life. And three years into college, I looked at everything that I'd experienced from left to right to every person that I met and realized that every single person I knew was actually depressed, 
lacked contentment, was really hurting and didn't have any answers. And it was vanity, everything under the sun. And that's when God chased me down and saved me. You see, the thing about the gospel is the problem is bigger than we understand. And a problem this big needs a very powerful solution. A solution is more powerful than we think. And I'm going to read to you the way Paul would explain this solution in Romans 5. I'm going to read this from the NLT, which is a little more conversational. This is Romans 5, 6 through 11. This is Paul explaining the problem. When we, you and I, were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship, our relationship, our community with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. Now, you see two things in this solution in this passage. You see that Jesus comes on the cross. He makes us, it says, friends with God because of what he did on the cross. On the cross, Jesus pays our debt. He pays the bill. It's called propitiation in the doctrinal term or the theological term. It means the payment had to be made. A debt got rang up. Somebody had to pay the bill. Jesus goes to the cross and pays the bill. But in addition, he says, it says here in verse 11, or verse 10, it says, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So at the cross, he pays the debt to restore our friendship. And then, and then we're saved from death by his life. Now, how in the world are we saved from death by his life? I want to get into that. I want to talk about that. You see, I like, I think a lot of churches and ours even particularly spend a lot of time on the payment part. We love to talk about the propitiation of what Jesus did on the cross. We, we read verses like first Peter two twenty four where it says, and he himself bore our sins on his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds, you were healed. He suffered guys. You can, you can read an account of how much Christ suffered on the road to Golgotha and on the cross. He suffered physically and he suffered emotionally in bearing our sin. But what we don't cover a lot is how did Jesus conquer death? It's one thing to restore relationship between us and God. It's one thing to pay our debt and make us right with God so that we have relationship with God. And that's an amazing thing. But see, there's still death coming. Every one of us has a time where we're gonna go and we ain't getting any younger. Let me tell you how I know I'm not getting any younger. It's really hard to lose weight right now. I mean, I look at a donut and gain two pounds. And, and, and so I, a couple weeks ago, about a month ago, I just started to read instead. I'm like, how did Jesus conquer death? How did he beat death? Because I see death all around me. I see decay all around me. Everything seems to be dying. And I want to know, you know what I want to know? Because if he beat death, then he's trustworthy. 
If he beat death, then I can trust him when he says it is finished, that death actually has an answer. And if he's not trustworthy, if there's no eternal life for us, if there's no way to beat death and we're all headed toward the grave and that's the end of it, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if the resurrection's not true, if you and I aren't promised eternal life or if he's not trustworthy, then believers in Jesus should be the most pitied people in the world. That we would put our hope in someone that's not trustworthy. You see, Christians are not called to live their best life now. That hashtag will just boil my blood. You get on Instagram like, living my best life. I'm like, this ain't our best life. This is our worst life. He promised us the best life. The question is, is he trustworthy to do it? Is he trustworthy to do it? And how do I know? How do I know? How do I put confidence in that? How do I put faith in that? The Bible says some extraordinary things about how Jesus conquered death. It says that Jesus actually has the keys to hell. Now, you don't have the keys to hell unless you are an owner. I want to submit to you that Jesus bought some real estate when real estate was low. (laughs) And he has the keys to hell, according to the Bible. It says that Jesus, when Jesus returns again, that death will be no more. So somehow in this gospel story, Jesus takes control of death. He conquers death. He takes control of hell. In Romans 10, 7, it says it this way. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. In Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, it says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. We go on to hear in 1 Peter 3, 19 and 1 Peter 4, 6 and Matthew 27, 15, that when Jesus died on the cross, cross, he actually descends into hell, preaches the good news of salvation to all of those who were born and died before he went to the cross, and then when he defeats death, takes them out of Sheol with him. Now that is something. You watch some Marvel movies that look good, but that is some movie. This is a big deal. Now, let me tell you why it worked this way. You see, sin created death. Sin earned death. The wages of sin is death. So when Jesus dies, but he hasn't sinned, we got a problem because he didn't earn it. And we serve a just God, the same just God that would require payment on the cross because there's sin. How in the world then can Jesus be in hell when he has not sinned? How can he die? How can his body decay when he has not sinned? He can't because Jesus broke the rules. I like Jesus, the rule breaker. Therefore, the bonds of death were not justified in holding Jesus. He broke the very rules that Adam's sin created. The curse from Genesis 3 was broken on the cross. I want you to listen to uh, the Apostle Peter's first sermon 
after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles. And uh, it's during a feast in Jerusalem. So there's all these visitors that have taken this pilgrimage into Jerusalem. And they're all in the town square. And they all speak a lot of different dialects and languages. And Peter and the apostles are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When it comes, it's called Pentecost. And he's going to preach, honestly, what is a really terrible sermon. Um, It's terrible just in that it starts with, hey, listen, we're not drunk. It's too early in the morning. Now, look, I'm not a good preacher, but I've never started a sermon that poorly. And what he's trying to explain in the sermon is is how Jesus solved this problem. And he gets to this in verse 23. He says, this man, he's talking about Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge for, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. Now, listen. Peter, these people just got here. They're like visitors, right? I mean, they came in from out of town. They weren't there when Jesus died. And he's like, no, you put him on the cross. They weren't even in Jerusalem. What is he saying? He said, your sin put him on the cross. That's why I can look at every one of us and myself and say, you put him on the cross. He went to the cross for you. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was, look at this, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Yeah, that's good news. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy one see decay. Jesus died and went to hell and hell could not hold him. Death could not hold him. The plague that has seeped into every area of our lives, into our body, into the way we age, into cancer, into disease, into death, into the world around us that's dying, into work that seems fruitless, into our universe, into the very nature around us. Death was undefeated until Jesus came. And death could not hold him. You ever heard that phrase, I think you bit off more than you could chew? Death bit off more than it could chew when it bit Jesus. And the best thing about this is he actually called his shot before he went to the cross. He told everybody it was going to happen. In John 10, 18, he said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. Universally across our history, The resurrection has hinged on the idea that Jesus paid a debt for us voluntarily and that he conquered death and that this life is not our best life, that Jesus conquered death. And as I was just reading through this, I began to remember something I read in high school. How many of you, this is going to go way back, how many of you read Dante's Inferno? Okay, this was mythology before mythology was cool. Before Harry Potter and stuff. What was the one with the little sea guy? Percy Jackson. Okay? This makes Percy Jackson look like a cartoon. 
Dante Alighieri it was a 14th century Italian poet. He's considered to be the most impactful literary influence in all of uh, Italy's history in philosophy and writing. He was a poet, and he wrote his, his sort of swan song. It was called The Divine Comedy, and in it, we call it Dante's Inferno. It's his mythological description of a journey down into the depths of hell, and it's got all the cool stuff. Man, it's got minotaurs and skeletons and unicorns. It doesn't have unicorns but it would be cool. And there are, there are these nine rings of hell all the way to the depths of hell. And each level is for worse and worse sins. And each level, Virgil takes Dante on this tour as they, they, they climb down hell. And as they go, like each sin has a punishment that is equal to its sin. And it's just all this imagery. And there's this crazy part where they get to the seventh level of hell. And it's where the blasphemers are and where they're being punished. And here's the crazy part. They get there and it's destroyed. It's rubble. And they have, to, they have to climb over all this rubble because everything's destroyed. And all the chains that hold the captives have been ripped from the wall. And there's all these people that are missing. And Dante turns to Virgil and he says, what happened here? And Virgil looks at him and says, oh, this is where Jesus came. Jesus was put in this level because he was accused of blasphemy, of calling himself the son of God. But when he got here and they put him in chains, death could not hold him. And even a 14th, Italian, 14th century Italian poet knows this. That is having confidence that you can put faith in the one who defeated death. Why is this such good news? Why is it such good news that Jesus defeated death and holds the keys to hell in his hands? Because it means that you and I can put our faith in doing anything that the Savior would ask of us with complete confidence. Because there's only one person in the history of earth who has defeated death. And if he could defeat death, if he could beat death into submission, then you and I can give him our attention and our allegiance and our adoration. I mean, if you could listen to one person of, of all the things you could listen to, of all the get-rich-quick schemes you could see on late-night TV, all the self-help books, all the self-actualization psychotherapists, all the friends that have a great idea, if you're going to pick one thing in your life to buy into with everything you've got, with your blood, your sweat, your tears, your resources, would it not be the one who conquered death? who beat it into submission, the one who called his shot ahead of time for the world to see and then did it on a world stage. That's worthy of everything. That's why, church, you don't get to hold back. We don't get to do this casual Christianity thing. We're in here to worship God, and we're like, when's it gonna be done? 90 minutes on Sunday morning. There's no such thing as casual Christianity. We didn't have a casual savior. We didn't have a savior that was like, listen, I'll give you 90 minutes, but the, the, the full sacrifice on the cross, that'd be too much. Going to the depths of hell to free the captives, that'd be too much. He gave everything. And he says in Luke 9, 23, that if you're to come up after him, you're gonna give up everything and follow him. And he's worth it. 
You aren't following just a good teacher. You're not following some sort of assistant or co-pilot. It's, he's, not a, he's not a fairy godfather. He's not a genie in a bottle. Jesus is not your homeboy. He's a king who conquered death. And he proved it. He laid his life down and he picked it back up again for you and I. But that promise for us only works if you put your life in his hands. The process of being saved by the gospel is that you hand it all over to him. Not the pieces that aren't working, because none of them are working. So my casual commitment doesn't work because that's not faith. My nominal, lukewarm, sounds nice, see you on Sunday mornings, but not during the rest of my life doesn't work. It's not faith. Faith, to be saved, to participate in the promises of the gospel is to hand it all over to him and just say, man, if you can defeat death, then surely you can fix me. Eyewitness testimony is still considered the strongest evidence in court. So listen to me. Listen to me if you're nothing else. If you don't believe any of this hogwash in the Bible. Jesus changed me. Jesus changed me. Jesus changed me. Jesus found me when I was running and was like, yo, you can run, but I got long legs. And he ran me down and he changed me. And I'm not over it. I'll never be over it. I know who I was before I met Jesus. And I just gotta tell you, you can be as cynical as you want Meet someone who met Jesus and everything is different. Nothing, when, after you meet Jesus, there's nothing in your life that will stay the same and it is a glorious thing. He will wreck your life in a phenomenal way. Happy Easter. <laughs> and you'll never want to go back. The problem was bigger than we understand. The solution was more powerful than we think. And number three, the promise is bigger than we can imagine. I just want to end on this point. I want to offer you an invitation. Jesus promises to conquer two types of death in your life. A spiritual death and a physical one. Because you and I were born into sin. We were born dead to spiritual things. With an inability to love God. With an inability to seek God. With an inability to understand even the Bible dead in our sin and awaiting the inevitable physical death that would come. What Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection solves both. The first is that he awakens us to begin to even consider spiritual things. Just about every believer that I know can point back to a point in their life when they, they realize that for some reason, at that point, they just started asking spiritual questions, having spiritual thoughts, being attracted into church services. Listen, this is a weird place. Y'all are weird. I really love you, but you're weird. And it's so attractive. When Jesus is saving you, you just can't stay away. And you just want more. That is God wooing you, chasing you. And you ain't getting away. Because he loves you too much. You can fight him, but he's a really good fighter. And you can run, 
but he's really fast. He's going to get you. And as God is awakening your soul to these things and pulling you toward him, he is changing you. He takes his spirit and he puts the Holy Spirit in you. And you begin through the process of transformation to produce spiritual fruit that you could not produce on your own. There's never been a single point in my life apart from the Holy Spirit I have ever produced an ounce of gentleness. It didn't even exist. But God does that as he begins to produce this life in your, what was dead soul, and you've come alive to the things of God, and his spirit begins to produce these things in you. And in addition to awakening your soul from death and putting his spirit in you, he will save us from physical death. That's a guarantee. Oh, I'm going to die a physical death more than likely. If Jesus doesn't come again, I'm going to have a day and it's coming and I'm going to pass away. But there's another day coming that Jesus promises when he will wipe away every tear and death will be no more and all of life will be as it should be. And we'll live life as we were originally created. Listen to the Apostle Paul explain in just a few verses what I've been trying to break down in Romans 5, 12 through 21. It says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death, a product of sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. For sin was indeed, indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Every one of those generations has died. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man, Adam's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 21. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The promise is greater, bigger, sweeter than you can imagine. Because we were born into death, we have no concept of how good eternity will be. When I was little, I used to think that heaven would be so boring. Who wants to sit around and sing hymns all day? And I have to learn how to play a harp? But that's not how heaven is described at all. Heaven is described that one day all struggle, all toil, all evil, all disease, all pain, all tears are gone, and you will live life exactly as you were intended at the day we were created in the garden. If you give your life to Jesus, you can have eternal life. Jesus is going to require everything, every part of your heart. 
He wants your heart and your desires and your passions. He wants your everything. And while the gift is actually free, you will be willing to give him everything if you know him. He's that trustworthy. Putting your faith in Jesus may not change a single one of your circumstances you're living through right now. It won't mean that there aren't struggles. It's not going to make you rich. It may not heal your body. But when he makes a new creation in you and you put your faith in him, every struggle, every fight, every hurt, every dysfunction, he rightly looks at in your life and says, give that to me. I'll carry it. And one day, one day, he's promised to come again to reconcile all of this broken creation around us. Romans 8.22 would say that even nature, even creation, even the earth groans awaiting Christ's coming again to fix all death so that we will never look death in the face again. And we can have confidence in the one who promises this because remember, death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold him. Death could not hold him. So my question for you today, will you give your life to Jesus? Will you put your faith in him today? Maybe you've never done that and today's the day you just, you need to put your full life in his hands and give yourself over to him. And if that's today, our elders are gonna be up here and we would love to talk to you about what that looks like to take steps forward with God to take your burdens and your struggles and give them over to Jesus. Maybe you, you've already done that. You, you've put your faith in Christ, but man, you've been running from him for a long time. It's just time to come home. You want to come up and talk to one of the elders and just get prayer. Come use the altar and talk to God. In a few minutes, we're going to do baptisms, which is the public profession of faith, the first step that a believer takes after they put faith in Christ. In fact, if you've already signed up, uh, go ahead and go to the door in the corner. You can make your way back. But if you haven't done that and you feel a call to be baptized, you want to you proudly proclaim your faith in Christ today. We've got shirts and shorts and towels and everything else. We'll dunk you. And we'll cheer you on. Maybe you're thinking, man, getting out of my seat and coming to talking to somebody about one of these things, man, that's scary. I just want to tell you something. Jesus is worth it. He is so worth it. He's worth potential embarrassment. He's worth giving up control over your life. He's worth picking up your cross every day and following him. He's worth it. And he's trustworthy because death could not hold him. Amen. You move as the Lord leads you.